You are listening to the Catholic Recon Podcast, testimonies from Catholic reverts and converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. Don't forget to leave a review and enjoy this week's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Catholic Recon Testimonies from Reverts and Converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. And today I've got two special guests, Father Peter Davids and his wife, Judy. And Father Peter reached out, I believe, through an email. This was a while back. And um, I remember doing some quick research on Father Peter and realizing that his story was very very layered. I know that many people that I've interviewed can say, okay, I've got a lot of layers to my story, but um, this specifically was very striking. And I'm just honored to have both of you here. And I know that there are so many people of all ages that can benefit from your wisdom, from your journey. Um, So like I do with everyone, why don't you tell me where did this journey begin? I'm assuming um, you have very fond memories of yeah. the Protestant faith. Uh, but yeah, you tell me, where, where, where do you believe this, this thing all yeah. started? Well, I would say that uh, it started almost, uh, well, really before our birth, uh, before my birth anyway, uh, in some ways, because my family had been part of the Plymouth Brethren for a number of years. Now, the Plymouth Brethren were an ecumenical movement from the early 1800s. They were the origin, or at least the origin of the popularization of dispensationalism, if uh, for those who know what that is, and uh, started in Britain. And, um, uh, but it is important to note two things, well, three things I'll say about them. One, is that they were an attempt to be ecumenical. In these last days, we need to get the church together. And so how did you do it? You dropped all your liturgies and met together in primitive simplicity and let the spirit lead. That was the idea. And, um, but the second one is with that, what you met around was the Lord's Supper you met around the table. And uh, the third was uh, after they got going and basically a number, most of the people were told it's either that group or our group, you know, the church, you know, the Methodist and the, or the uh, Baptist or whatever other group you were in. it became clear that they saw themselves as a renewal movement or waiting renewal movement over against the Anglican church, the Church of England. And so they called themselves assemblies. We are an assembly of people gathered outside the church waiting for the Lord to come and renew his church, which is in ruins. Now, Catholic was not part of that. <laughs> Catholic was that was the that was the the uh, Church of England, and so we did not have uh, technically elders in the early days. We had people who did the work of elders, 
And we also had no pastors oh. because only the Episcopal Church, only the Church of England could ordain. And so you couldn't have a, a true presbyter or, you know, pastor or elder of any type. Okay. Quick switch to the U.S. My father immigrated to the U.S. My mother's parents, who were not Plymouth Brethren, had uh, come to the U.S., um, New York State, and it was there that my father met my mother, of course. They got married in 1941, and not long afterward, my father was transferred. He was an electronic engineer to um, Syracuse, New York, where there wasn't a Plymouth Brethren Church, but he started one. Tent meetings, apparently. Uh, I, can, I cannot believe this, but my parents have sworn to it. And so my mother played the piano, my father preached, some people gathered, and that was our small community. But my father always uh, in Syracuse uh, taught a Sunday school class for the Wesleyan Methodist Church downtown. And we often went to, uh, on Sunday evenings, went to other churches, but worship was the breaking of bread uh, in the morning uh, in the rooms in, the, well, several places, but the earliest one I remember is the YMCA. Now, meanwhile, down in Texas, <laughs> Judy. Yeah, yeah my, um... Mother was raised Baptist, my father was raised Methodist, but at the age of 14, his neighbors took him to a Plymouth Brethren camp, and he experienced a conversion, and then started going to the Brethren Church, and when he met my mother, <clears throat> um, he took her into the Brethren Church, so I was dedicated as an infant in the Plymouth Brethren Church, and made a confession of faith when I was nine uh, in that church. When I was 11, I was baptized and received my first communion. And when I was 12, kneeling at a tree stump, now why I knelt, I don't know, um, except maybe that some of my Catholic bones that I don't, didn't know about, but I knelt at a tree stump in the woods uh, at a camp near Dallas, Texas called Cedar Hill Bible Camp and promised the Lord, I will be your missionary. I will go anywhere. I will do anything you ask me. And I surrendered to him at that point. Um, I was a faithful um, church member. Um, we were sort of at the church every time the doors open because uh, my father was an elder and he was a director of Texas youth camps, um, <clears throat> because that's where he became a Christian. He dedicated himself to uh, youth camps um, in his own ministry, but worked as a chemical operator at Roman Haas Chemical Company on the Houston Ship Channel. So um, I went off to Wheaton College, a Christian college um, in Illinois, and there I met Peter Davids. Okay. Well, if you go back to my story, uh, my story 
was I would also have been dedicated, I believe, because I know that was important to my father in the case of uh, one of our children who was now deceased, but uh, died of crib death. Um, but um, uh, I do not remember a time when I did not believe. I can remember times when I was around four or five, uh, proudly saying to my mother that I had sung all the songs in church. I also knew that when I was one, I have a brother five years older than me, uh, and uh, my mother pinned me under one arm and um, uh, read Bible stories. These would have been Bible story books, but King James language, of course. Sure. Is, is there anything other? Uh, <laughs> back in those days, I mean, we're talking about, yeah. you know, a while ago. <clears throat> um, and um, she noticed that actually fairly quickly that I, when she would be going through the book again, I would show recognition of the character. So she thought she was just keeping me quiet, keeping yeah. me out of the way and out of trouble. In fact, I was apparently learning much to her surprise. There was always Bible reading, uh, either the earliest things I can remember is pulling a card out of a box which had um, verses on it, sort of a promise verses. Later would be reading around the table a chapter. Now, but I, I don't remember a time when I didn't believe. I had what I call um, well-meaning spiritual abuse when I was about age five, where a Sunday school teacher, and there couldn't have been many of us in the class knowing the size of the church, uh, said to us, if you don't, uh, uh, if you haven't asked Jesus into your heart, uh, God, will, the rapture will come and your parents will be taken and you'll be left behind. And she left it there. Wow. Which just absolutely terrified me, obviously, because I mean, I, I believed it wasn't anything I didn't believe. I was, uh, anyway. And so I did at home in secret for a week or two or three afterwards, uh, asked Jesus into my heart several times as I went to uh, try to go to sleep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but of course, you know, asking Jesus into your heart isn't something you find in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Yeah. It, it's just that he comes in is in the Bible, but asking him is that no conversion story in the Bible does that. But at any rate, that's why I say it was, it was abuse because it didn't change my state. I didn't believe anything differently. I wasn't committed in any different way. When I was about 14, uh, we had moved to Lynchburg, Virginia, and we're going to a Plymouth Brethren Church in Roanoke, Virginia. And uh, in Lynchburg, yes, we did know of... Um, we did sometimes go to church in the evening in Lynchburg, in which case one of the places was um, Thomas Road Baptist Church. And so we did know Jerry Falwell in his younger years. Younger. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> I knew uh, both of his uh, sons uh, as, you know, essentially little boys. I would have been a uh, teenager. I would have been 12 and up until I left for university then. At any rate, um, 14, I said to myself one summer, hmm, you know, it's time to get serious about your faith. In other words, I've been going along, doing everything expected, living a, you know, a believing life, but I realized that I hadn't, <coughs> I hadn't sort of, in a mature way, that it was a child's faith. You know, it was, uh, which Jesus likes, but, uh, but uh, that I had to, uh, you know, uh, move forward in it. Sure. And so I made that uh, decision. I, I just said, okay, it's time to get serious. And leaving the faith, you know, either get serious or drop it. Leaving the faith just wasn't an option. Uh, and so um, I... Uh, did several things. One is I started observing the fundamentalist five, you know, which were, um, uh, you know, well, I didn't have any problem with drinking uh, or playing cards. I would have been in our house. Even though my parents were not true fundamentalists, for them, it wasn't an absolute. For them, it was something you did in America because it was expected. Uh, and okay. I did, I did stop going to dances with my, uh, with my girlfriend. Now, what are, just so the listeners know, what are the fundamentalist five? What yeah, uh, no drinking, dancing, going to movies or other types of theater, uh, smoking. going to, uh, dances, smoking. No smoking, smoking, no smoking, and no playing cards, no playing cards. Uh, using, you know, uh, when we got to Wheaton, gambling. No gambling. they would have that, they would have that in um, Wheaton as well as part of the pledge. Yeah, but in Wheaton, really? You had to sign a pledge? Okay. In Wheaton College, they would, uh, they would have, um, they would play cards using rook cards. So they weren't using the wrong type of cards. Got it. That's <laughs> but at any rate, um, uh, and which led to the end of my relationship with that girlfriend. But more importantly, I asked the elders of our church for baptism and for um, uh, to come into fellowship. When you came into fellowship, you not only could partake of communion, but as an adult male, uh, you're considered an adult male then, as, a, as an adult male, you could stand up and say, let us sing hymn so-and-so, okay. or stand up and give a prayer, or read from scripture, or, you know, essentially all um, ministries were open to you. And how often, when you mentioned Holy Communion, how often was every week? It was Is every week. Any type of worship? Well, any other type of worship? Yeah, every week. That's right. That's right. Where and 
Wow. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. That's a setup for the Catholic Church, but I didn't know it. We didn't know that. Then. Well, I'm just, I was curious because I've, there have been yeah. people all over the map saying yeah. even, uh, um, a denomination that I assumed would be more frequent was every six weeks sometimes or once a yeah. month. So I was just curious oh, where, oh. where they landed on that. And if you were really part of the church, you were at the breaking of bread. They did have, and not all brethren churches would in the morning, but they, the one which we did, had a family Bible hour, which would look like a typical uh, preaching service. Okay. Uh, at a, say, Baptist or other church like that. Uh, but that was seen more as gospel outreach. It wasn't really seen as the, uh, the as worship. Got it. And um, at any rate, in my case, I was actually led into fellowship first. And because the baptistry had broken in our church, and so we didn't, um, they said, we're building a new church, we're not going to fix the baptistry, you can come into fellowship, and, <laughs> you know, after asking me a few questions, and finding out that my faith was um, uh, pretty solid, after all, I had been, I had been listening to my father at home, as well as uh, in the church, he was one of the more frequent preachers, and um, uh, Early in earlier years, my disobedience would be sneaking down the stairs a little bit so I could listen through the um, uh, the banister as my father taught a Bible class in our living room. Uh, That's horrible! How how dare you do that? <laughs> I was supposed to be in bed anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I know. That's just yeah. It could be. But at any rate, that. Um, um, so that's what happened. That's what happened. And then shortly after I became, I would be baptized in January when we moved into the new church by my father. <clears throat> and shortly in, um, uh, in uh, after that, my, the, the elders came to three young men. I was the youngest at 15. My older brother was the oldest, and there was the one which we, uh, in between, called Dick Adams, Dickie Adams. And they said, would you, uh, young men, take the uh, Sunday evening gospel service, where no one who wasn't a Christian came to, but we still called it the gospel service, and uh, it <laughs> And it was where the most hard-bitten of the um, uh, church members came. So we couldn't damage anyone's faith. Will you take that in turn, preaching once a month, and then get the other young people, including uh, some of the young women, uh, to um, be involved in music and, and so on? And so we did at 15. At 15, though I wouldn't preach on Sunday morning until I was 16, which was um, 
My 16th birthday was November 22nd, 1963, which may ring in your head a little bit. Say it again. 63. November 22nd, 1963. Yes. Yes. Uh, and of course, I didn't know two much more influential people in, or at least one of them uh, in my life uh, died that day besides Kennedy. One was uh, C.S. Lewis. I was going to say, wasn't there was three? Elvis Huxley. Yep, Huxley. That's right. <laughs> but at any rate, the Sunday after that, that was a Friday, the Sunday after that was my first Sunday morning sermon. And so I've been preaching ever since. Um, Let me ask you this. So regardless of age, what direction were you given? Or was it, how did they approach as commentary? The Where did you go? Go ahead and say, what was that? As the Lord leads. As the Lord leads. Okay. Would you be confined to a few verses or would this be, hey, here's a book of the Bible. Good luck. Oh, I could do whatever the Lord led me to do. Okay. So not even with, there are no, I was wondering if there were any parameters. Just Usually we put verses together, sure. but I know that that first one was on first Timothy or is on some themes, which I spotted through first Timothy. I can remember that much. I have it somewhere on tape. If I want to make my, if I want to humble myself, I play it. <laughs> it was, I think, I mean, they thought it was fine. I thought it was awful. Now, in retrospect. Sure. But that summer, the next summer, again, I was 16, I went off to, um, uh, a, uh, to a National Science Foundation uh, sort of experience in Carnegie Mellon University or Carnegie Mellon, uh, uh, Carnegie Institute of Technology as it was then in um, Pittsburgh. I wanted to be an electronic engineer, so I was all into sciences. I went off there and um, uh, I was helping a graduate student in his doctoral work. I was the lab grunt. And they gave us time on computers, which in those days were rooms full and, and yeah. so on. And um, uh, it was a fascinating experience. But on the way home to my dorm from, uh, from the dining hall with two other students, I was one of two students out of the 20 of us who was not an atheist. The other one was a Catholic, so I wasn't entirely sure he was a Christian. Yeah. We didn't talk the same language. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but at uh, any rate, I'm walking home and God speaks to me in my head. Now, remember we didn't believe that things like visions or revelations or anything like that existed. The Plymouth Brethren, Plymouth Brethren didn't. They were gift cessationists. Cessationists, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And uh, um, they weren't originally, but after, uh, during the, their early years, they shifted to that. Um, originally, it was the duty of all Christian men in these last days to uh, pray to the Lord for the restoration of the gifts of the Spirit. Got it. 
Interesting. Uh, but um, they, they certainly weren't expecting them in my day. But I just knew it was God. And um, uh, God, as I said, spoke to me in my head. And he said, you don't want to be an engineer, do you? And I saw myself behind a big desk and I was essentially chained to the desk by a slide rule. Oh man. And those, if you're again old enough, you'd know a slide rule was the best calculator we had uh, for uh, those periods, that period. And I'd never thought this in my life before. My older brother was uh, in training to be an engineer. I was going, you know, really was already talking about which college I was going to. And my father had been one all his life. And I said, no, I don't want that. I just knew I didn't. Yeah. And he said, but I've called you to study Bible. Now, that was a problem. I didn't know where to study Bible. I had no idea. I had no idea why you would study Bible. I mean, everybody uh, should be reading the Bible at home and studying. My father had a biblical library and, uh, and, um, and so on. But I just said, okay. When I got to my dorm room, I wrote my usual Friday letter to my parents and said, I'm not going to these schools we've been talking about. I'm going to the only place I could remember that I'd ever heard of anyone studying Bible, which was Philadelphia College of the Bible. Uh, I had a camp counselor who was a um, teacher there, I think, at one point, years before. At any rate, and, you know, dropped the bomb in the mail. And, <laughs> but that's, that Sunday, we had a visiting preacher uh, at the... Plummet Brethren Church I went to who said, Emmaus Bible School needs teachers. And he, he prefaced that by saying, I don't know why I'm saying that. And I felt like an arrow had gone into my heart, you know, teaching Bible. You study it to teach it, you knew, knew. Uh, <laughs> I mean, God didn't say you knew, knew, but... Uh, you know, as I said, I didn't know, um, didn't know about seminaries, didn't know about any of this. I think I may have heard that Jerry Falwell had gone to a Bible college. Got it. I may have heard that. Uh, but again, he didn't have much formal biblical education himself. At any rate, uh, that next year, I... Um, somehow discovered Wheaton College, and um, that's where I ended up going. Wait, so this was, at that point, you're 18? I would have been 17. 17? Yeah. You meet Judy as a 17-year-old or 18? No, um, in Wheaton, I was, um, I was actually a psych major. I ended up being a psych major, but at any rate, I was uh, walking across campus with a Bible prof, the head of the Bible department, um, during my, I think it was my first term 
uh, towards the end of my first term. At any rate, and he said to me from his observations of me in class and knowing that, you know, where I would, was interested in, he said, um, he said, Peter, I think you're going to get a doctorate. Now, this is from a guy who didn't even know you could get a degree. Uh, well, you know, six, eight months beforehand. You're going to get a doctorate. Uh, he says it's a long road. He was thinking of Dallas Theological Seminary where he had graduated from. He said, uh, shave a year off while you can. Uh, if you take summer schools, they're actually cheaper at Wheaton. And um, shave a year off while you can. So what I did, you know, I, again, I was 70. I, I would have, I guess I would have been 18 because I would have turned 18 after I was in uh, Wheaton uh, in November. But I was just 18. I started to accelerate. My parents didn't know why yeah, I would yeah. do that. They had enough money to send me through. And, you know, if that's what I wanted to do, fine, you know. <laughs> and uh, they were behind me. Um, and um, that summer in summer school, I bumped into her. Right. Literally? Almost. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was in a different position because I was older than Peter and I was behind a semester. Uh, in university. So I wanted to go to summer school to make up that semester and graduate with my class. So I had a little part-time job uh, in the university cleaning tape recorders. And my boss was going to the dining room and going to meet a friend. And we finished about the same time. So he said, you want to come over and have uh, dinner with my friend and I. So we walked across and he introduced me to Peter. Um, and he and Peter got into this crazy philosophical. No, Peter, you and he. Oh, Tim and I got into this conversation. Uh, and Tim was trying to convince me that women were an idea in the mind of well, uh, men and and I was telling him he was crazy. He <laughs> was also trying to convince you that you couldn't, you shouldn't date anyone. Oh right, he had this crazy the, idea you could, the Lord would tell you who to marry. Tell a man. And he would go up and tap <laughs> the girl on the shoulder and say, "Hey, the Lord just uh, told me to marry you. What's your name, by the way?" <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, we got into this crazy conversation at dinner and we walked back to the dormitory where we were both living. Um, and I parted from those two guys. They went to the men's side and I went to the women's. And I turned around to Peter and I said, well, I'll pray for you. <laughs> I just thought he was so crazy. Because I thought Tim was nuts, but he was my friend. Yeah. I supported him. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, five days later, five days later, um, he comes to me and there was a, a, a girl there too, another one of the co-eds, uh, I think my, essentially my class, and she um, had decided that the God had said to her, 
that she should marry Tim. Tim's theory in reverse. Tim wanted to detach her. <laughs> and I said, Tim, you know, I don't know anything about women. And I'd grown up with three boys, so that's pretty well true. It was truer. I would find out more. That, that was how true that was once I got married. But anyway, <laughs> Tim, you know, I don't know anything about women. He said, so ask a woman, well, who can I ask? And I had somehow sensed that she was going to be a counselor. Uh, I mean, that would be, that would actually happen years later, but anyway, wow. I had sensed that in her. I said, go ask Judy Bushelon. And, oh, I couldn't do that. I said, Tim, I will ask her for you if you really want. And he said, would you? And so we arranged to meet after prayer meetings. We were actually going to different Plymouth Brethren churches, but both had a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Uh -huh. And we um, met in uh, the one nearest the campus uh, after the Wednesday night prayer meeting, discovered we were both brethren, and suddenly I became okay for her. Because in my Plymouth Brethren church, uh, it was thought you needed to marry a Plymouth Brethren guy to really be a good Christian. Got it. You know? And so when I found out he was Plymouth Brethren, oh, well, he's okay. <laughs> so um, I knew my dad would like it. The long and short of it was 14 days later or 19 days after we met, we were engaged. Oh, man. <laughs> I was all of 18. <laughs> And uh, a year after that, or 401 days after we met, we were married. So that was 60, son, 67? Was, 1967? Yeah, that was 67. And that would be between my summer school and the time she had to report to teach uh, in the next town to Wheaton. Got I, it. She graduated. So, okay. So you're super young. I wonder if, because I want to make sure that we have time for yeah. the Catholic part of things, if you were to box up the next, I don't know, you tell me, 20, 30 years, was it Plymouth all the way? And, and No, 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 no. What happens is, over those next years, is we, uh, I go on to Trinity uh, Evangelical Divinity School. Okay. There... Uh, influential professors, um, who one of which was Plymouth Brethren, shift some of my thinking. Suddenly, I became gospel-centered rather than Pauline-centered, which is very important. And the second thing was uh, uh, I began seeing how the New Testament, the Old Testament, was interpreted by the New. And so I began to have a whole, uh, what I would now call theodrama, uh, exegesis, uh, and so forth. Um, at the end of that time, I was going on to um, England for um, study in, um, in uh, New Testament or biblical studies uh, at the University of Manchester, the doctorate. And I got books of a couple of classic books of worship. 
I realized, you know, I've learned about these other denominations. I should see their classic literature. One was the Book of Common Prayer because my background is British. I was actually a British citizen. I didn't know it by at that point, but I was because my father was born in Britain. And um, uh, at that point, I um, and was in Britain. I started using it in my devotions. And um, in, I also got exposure to the Anglican Church there. My actual supervisor, which wasn't F.F. Bruce, uh, he was the head of the department, but was S.S. Smalley, uh, was a uh, Anglican priest, even though we didn't talk about it, but I got to know what he was like. And secondly, my, uh, uh, we became friends with uh, Anglican uh, priest down uh, at Curate and down the road uh, through two of our children, um, his child and my child, who both went to the same nurse, nursery school together, my eldest. And um, uh, I actually preached in his church a couple of times, but this was low church Anglican. I okay. mean, this was really low, so it wouldn't have been any communion. Um, went over, my first job was in, was in Germany. I went over to uh, Germany. This was in a Brethren slash Baptist um, uh, college, what we would call Bible college uh, now. Um, it's now actually university, considered university level. And it, there, several things happened to us. One, I learned about Christian social concern. Uh, second, uh, I, we had um, a, uh, well, I had and first and heard then a charismatic experience. Okay. However, it was quickly, it was in the context of the, um, of, a, of a German group, actually a German Baptist group, which for which it was very much um, contemplative. Okay. Uh, so contemplation and prayer were sort of merged very much. Um, third, we um, discovered the classic spiritual tradition. Now, while it was through literature from the U.S., namely uh, Sojourner's Community in Washington, D.C., that I learned about this, some of this literature, I quickly was reading um, stuff mm -hmm. from uh, that tradition. And Judy goes to a ecumenical charismatic retreat down at Schloss Castle, Schloss's castle in German, Kraheim, and comes back with a book for me. It was led by a Catholic priest and a Catholic nun. And uh, I didn't realize how much their contemplative uh, spirituality influenced me, but it influenced me deeply. And I did pick up this book that they had recommended uh, during the conference and took it back to Peter for him to read. And it was Carlos Correto 
Carlos Carreto um, uh, had followed uh, in the footsteps of Charles and Foucault. Uh, and um, he had, uh, and in his book, he wrote about, um, one of the things he wrote about was in the, he's in the Algerian desert as a monk. He has left a big youth ministry in Italy for this. He is kneeling on the sand floor of a rude chapel before the blessed sacrament and it put a hook in my heart. I didn't know what to make of it, but it put a hook in my heart. I could not forget that image. No picture, just his description. Unbelievable. While on a retreat myself, um, a fasting retreat there, God spoke to me and said, again, it was one of these things, when God really wants, knows that I won't do it on my own, won't come up with the ideas of my own, he sort of uses a two by four over the head and speaks. <laughs> and uh, he said, I want you to join the Episcopal Church. <laughs> Now, anyway, uh, that started a process. The long and short of it is we heard of a new Episcopal seminary starting in, um, in uh, the Pittsburgh area. Okay. And I wrote the dean president, who was the only staff member at the time, and said, what is this, a evangelical Episcopal seminary? Can there be such a thing? Not a word about what, uh, about me or that call or anything. Sure. And he writes back and says, how would you like to be our first uh, um, professor of biblical studies? <laughs> yeah. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, now he had checked me out a little bit. I, I want to insert one little yeah, story. Yeah. He had a visitor and from Australia in our living room. And we were talking about Peter having written Bishop Stanway. And this visitor knew him knew he'd planted 25 churches in Tanzania, knew him, uh, that he was a great Christian devoted man and could tell us, yeah, you want to be involved with that man. And so I, I thought later, God sent an angel and told us all about Bishop Stanway. The other thing which I'll mention is that the thing which he didn't uh, is that he worked several, I'll call miracles. Yeah, uh, that made my leaving Vedenist after only two years. God work. God, yeah, it was God um, uh, made the, the the top the top man there say, you know, we didn't want Peter to go, but it is of God. You know, God has spoken. We cannot uh, say no. <laughs> I, I'm just amazed that you get such clear direction about Episcopal church yeah. and to, and then, and then in hindsight to realize what that, yeah. what that all means to be, to have that as kind of a, um, one of your rest stops, so to speak in the, in the journey. So we went, we went there, we were there seven years. Um, again, um, 
first I was I was ordained in the Episcopal Church a couple of years after doing that, ordained as a transfer of ordination. I had been a a um, a brethren uh, chaplain in the military, not full time. I'd been part time even while I was in Germany. Got it. In the in reserves, but um, still. Uh, secondly, we we did have the crib death of our of our um, third daughter uh, there, and that really changed me into a pastor. And I had a Catholic doctor, Dr. Sabatel, and he sent me a card after this crib death saying he had a mass said for Elizabeth. And I was just thought, I thought, oh, how sweet of him. But later, after becoming Catholic, I realized, wow, God was doing things that I had no idea what he was doing. But that was just a little seed. Yeah, the little seeds, yeah. To have this Catholic doctor. And he prayed for me because I, I had a miscarriage after that and then couldn't get pregnant again for a while. And it was a very low period in my life uh, when Elizabeth died. But God was at work. And he yeah. planted a little Catholic seed during that time. And another seed that was planted is a an Episcopal um, pastor from um, Philadelphia that just really had met me once, and had um, uh, had uh, he was he had had a big healing ministry dating back to the 30s in Philadelphia mm -hmm. in his Episcopal church, uh, but connected with the Eucharist. And uh, he sent us, uh, let's see, one, one, two, three, four, five, five crucifixes, real cheap crucifixes in an envelope. Scrawled on the envelope was, God lost his son too. In an envelope, sent it to us. <laughs> uh, my first crucifix. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Incredible, yeah. Absolutely. And when I was ordained in 1979, 1980, I went to down to Steubenville to the National Catholic Charismatic Conference for Priests and Deacons. Um, because one of the big, because it was charismatic, but also because the main speaker was a, an Episcopal uh, priest. No kidding. Uh, Terry, Terry Fulham from, um, from Darien, Connecticut. And, um, but also uh, Michael Scanlon was there and so on, Father Scanlon and so on, all these sort of things. I mean, there's 800 priests and uh, mostly priests there and 80 are uh, Episcopalian or I think a couple of those 80 were, were Lutheran. So everyone was playing playing along nicely in that period oh man we were we were more than playing along nicely we you know i thought in the worship that had their um had i seen angels sliding down the tent poles it was held in a huge tent outside no kidding I, I wouldn't have been surprised and say oh yeah let's yeah see you know <laughs> You know, this sort of thing. We we had small groups together and we, you know, irrespective of denomination, we yeah. prayed. But that year for the first time, 
they were, uh, because of a papal nuncio that had come through, they were forced at the main Eucharist to, we um, were forced to separate. And so at the, um, at the offertory, uh, us 80 processed out of the tent to a room in the university somewhere, uh, and the rest stayed in the tent. And both sides were crying. That's wow. Kind of reminds me of RCIA, the uh, yeah candidates. Before that, they they had had Episcopal altar here, Catholic altar there, Catholic priest mic'd, Episcopal priest mumbles, uh, <laughs> and you were supposed to go to your right altar, and so on. But, that uh, is fascinating. You Two know, altars set up. But here we had to go, we had to separate. And I started praying for the unity. Yeah. The unity. These are my brothers. These are my brothers. I am one of you know them, and you know we got to get over this thing, you know. And um, at that point, I didn't realize that my orders were invalid. Uh, it wouldn't have been until really pretty close to the time I became a Catholic priest that I would have would read that particular uh, uh, papal a document. I think it was an encyclical. But uh, no, uh, I was going to say now, do you think that it's so uh, yeah, the way you're describing that so close, in a sense, with in, to this unity. Do you think in any way that 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 those moments delayed um, conversion ultimately to the Catholic faith. Um, they delayed it in this way in that I hoped that we would somehow get together. Secondly, I was deeply involved in biblical studies. I was a professor, you know. Yeah. Had been. Yeah. While I was a professor, I would go through, I would teach John. I would teach, uh, you know, Revelation. And so um, Raymond Brown, Father Raymond Brown changed my mind on John 6. And so I believes it, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I often taught it uh, even in places where it would, it would have seemed strange. Like in the Baptist University. Yeah, I yeah. would have, I would have, um, um, I uh, would, uh, Mary is in Revelation 12. Mm -hmm. There you see, you know, she is essentially queen of heaven. And you, you get all these images there. She is the mother of the church because they're her children that are being persecuted and so on. And so there is all sorts of ways that would, um, that I would that I would be changing, and the and of course we were constantly reading things. I was reading the Desert Fathers. I was reading Francis of Assisi. I was reading uh, other things like that. So how did you in that period? How were you reconciling that with the Anglican slash Episcopalian Church? I'm just curious. well, we're really one. Say it again. We're really one, I would say. We just, it's just so those, you know, uh, top snots have to get their, their acts together. 
I guess that's I guess that's what I'm asking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you aware of that <laughs> of that portion of it, or is it? Yeah. Go ahead, yeah. Judy. Yeah. And and while Peter was teaching at um, in Vancouver. Well, this would be years later in Vancouver, um, Regent College Regent, in Vancouver. Regent okay. College. Yeah. Um, I took some courses called the Christian Spirit and Spirituality. And my professor happened to be British, but uh, he started class one day by saying, I've fallen in love with a woman who's not my wife. And then he told us, that he was speaking of Teresa of Avila. And he also said, uh, now I want you to write a term paper and if you have any trouble deciding what to write, come see me. So I went and visited him and I came out of his office with a stack of books this high. Uh, I don't know how many on Teresa, but several other spirituality books. And I started a journey that day of reading what I call as a Protestant, the spiritual classics. Got it. And Teresa influenced me tremendously in my faith. And actually, as, as I got deeper and deeper into reading uh, St. John of the Cross, uh, Francis de Sales, um, you know, just a whole bunch of the uh, Protestant classics. Yeah, spiritual uh, classics. Yeah. Spiritual classics. Uh, they were feeding my soul, but I had no idea that I was gradually stepping towards the Catholic Church. No, I was. I was actually had been teaching since my Trinity day in my in those uh, Pittsburgh days. I had started teaching uh, spirituality or prayer as well history of Christian spirituality or history of prayer and using the classics as, as, as well. My, one of my horrors with the evangelical Episcopal people, by the way, is that they, they did not celebrate uh, um, the Eucharist every Sunday. Yeah. Uh, we were centered around. We were more. The worship service. I was, you know, sort of higher yep. church. I knew some high church people that did. I went to uh, confession once a year. I would do work through Ignatius's um, spiritual exercises during Lent. Wow. And then uh, in Holy Week, I went to an uh, Anglo-Catholic priest I knew uh, across uh, Pittsburgh and he would hear my confession. And uh, then we'd have lunch together afterwards. And like a good priest, he never mentioned a thing he had heard, <laughs> even to me. Yeah. Wow. And uh, um, so I've been having some of these experiences, though it was a Baptist professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School was the first one who talked about confession to us. He had said, he had talked about the necessity uh, of, of confession in uh, people who were feeling Serious guilt over serious sins. What and yeah, if you remember, would he often uh, reference like John twenty twenty three, or would he uh, speak more he, of tradition he, he, and how it's good for the soul? I mean, I'm just curious. He was just saying this. This is necessary. He was saying somebody comes in and has this burden. He says. He says, put on your suit coat or your pulpit robe. 
you know, he's talking to Protestants, whatever you use on Sunday morning, take them out into the church in front of whatever table you use for communion. Yeah. Have them kneel there and, um, uh, you know, confess their sins uh, and so on. And, you know, uh, pronounce them forgiven in the name of God. Wow. You're speaking from a pastoral point of view. And he was he was was a he was a Baptist. But anyway, I'd had my experiences back in Trinity. We went on. I would would teach in um, in uh, Regina at a Christian Missionary Alliance school that was uh, somewhat interdenominational. We would go back to the the Vancouver area uh, in Canada, and I would um, I would uh, be teaching people who had come up through the ranks at um, at uh, Vineyard's Church there. And um, even though I was an Episcopal priest, I would would always go to uh, and sometimes uh, serve at a um, uh, at the local Anglican church. You know, if he needed me, I would serve, uh, you know, I would be the presider uh, if um, otherwise I was there. And um, so I was always part, but then I would be back at uh, that, uh, at uh, the uh, vineyard. Um, And um, something had happened uh, during this time that was important for her while we were in Regina. She had been doing counseling, right? And you had a burnout. Oh, yes. Um, I I, uh, crashed and burned. And uh, I had a counseling teacher in Vancouver that I called up and said, what do I do? And he said, we'll come to this conference. There's a seminar on burnout. So I went to the seminar and got some counseling, personal counseling there. And the counselor said, go to a spiritual director, take a whole year off. You are burned to a crisp, Uh, but go to a spiritual director. So we went back home to Regina and I went into the seminary where he taught and I said, where do I find a spiritual director in Regina, Saskatchewan? And they said, you'll have to go to the Catholics. So I went to a convent. That sounds funny. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. You'll have it. (laughs) They assigned me to Sister Harriet. And she saw me every Friday morning for a whole year. And she began to catechize me. I didn't realize what she was doing. But she led me in silence, solitude, retreating, contemplative prayer. and she just quietly shared her faith and would answer my questions. You know, how do I find God? And, uh, you know, I, my prayers just hit the ceiling and bounce back down at this point. I, and so she just, uh, you know, led me very gently um, into the Catholic Church. Now, the crazy thing about that for me is I never realized consciously how yeah. Catholic I was becoming. But I was just, you know, taking step by step <laughs> closer and closer and closer. So what year was that? What year was that 
Um, so when you were meeting with her and then when 90 to 91, 90 to 91. And then yeah. how many years later did well, you 2014. 2014. 2014. Okay. But during that 20 plus year stretch, you were very, you, you were following that same kind of pattern of what she taught. Yeah. I was constantly reading the spiritual yep. classics. Yep. And, um, when I burned out, I, um, you know, actually made my first silent retreat for a week at a monastery. She sent me to this monastery and um, it was an amazing experience. I, I, she had me meditating on a verse in Psalm um, chapter 46, verse 11, be still and know that I am God. And I had meditated on that for uh, three months and then she sent me on this retreat and I went knelt in the chapel there at this monastery and looked up at the altar and above the altar in one foot high green letters were the words be still and know <laughs> I began to cry I realized God had yeah. my number yeah, and and uh, he wanted me to heal, and so that silent retreat started me on retreating uh, myself, and then later I led retreats, incorporating all the spiritual lessons that Sister Harriet had taught me. Oh my goodness, I love yeah. that, and I'm sure. Say, go ahead, go ahead. You're going. Oh, I was just gonna say, I'm I'm sure um, all the spiritual classics, as you say, uh, were helpful. But I think of, you know, the burnout and how uh, St. John of the Cross can pause, pray, play. I didn't even know that you had a book. This documents my burnout and then all the lessons I learned and how I created the retreats. I just, yeah, when you mention all that, I think of, um, the dark night of the soul and the purgative mm -hmm. way and then the illuminative way. And then yes. also DeSales and how he, um, in his uh, introduction to the devout life, how he was mm -hmm. so, you know, he's addressing uh, Philomena and he's so careful, so tender. And, and, and it's not just for her. I mean, she represents everyone mm -hmm. and in these incredibly difficult times, how to, draw inward not to be more self-loving, draw inward to understand who you are and be comfortable in silence and be able yes. to examine your yes. motives and all this peace that comes from doing right. that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we, um, we, we went back to, as I said, we went back and we're working for Vineyard. She was counseling. And um, then when I was, um, I was also teaching for Regent too. So when I was uh, laid off there, they laid off because of a financial crisis, they laid off all specialists. Um, I was uh, invited uh, over to um, Austria to help rebuild theological education in, um, in uh, Eastern Central Europe. And, uh, you know, this was after the fall of the wall. Yeah, And uh, so we lived in a castle in Austria and then later down in Innsbruck. Uh, but during that time, we had, uh, we had good ecumenical relations with the, uh, with the Catholic Church. Uh, and really, I would say now a little bit too good uh, because, 
<laughs> the local pastor had no trouble serving communion to, uh, to uh, me knowing, or, or her for that matter, sure. knowing precisely who we were yep. and so on. And in fact, I saw he would have an ecumenical mass once a year. And uh, in that mass, his essentially con-celebrant was the Lutheran pastor in town. And I would go to the Lutheran church. <laughs> this is starting to blow my mind. I'm like, what? And, uh, you know, so these are again relationships. And of course, yeah. we went down to, uh, when we were in Innsbruck, I saw my first uh, Corpus Christi procession. Except a little bit different, a little bit different. They, they uh, first thing it was, you know, you're, you're walking, taking up whole streets of the city. Uh, they were walking. I was observing. Yeah. And, of course, the monstrance that had to be carried by um, several people, <laughs> you know. Uh, and um, where, when they would stop and they would uh, have prayers and things, and I, I saw one of these, the Austrian National Guard from the Napoleonic era, which was marching along with them, would, uh, as they raised the uh, monstrance, they would, um, you would hear the guns click and the muskets go off. <laughs> and uh, actually back in, uh, up in the hills in Midrasil, at uh, major masses, like, uh, like that ecumenical one, you would also have that happen at the elevation of the host. And so oh. outside the church, <laughs> you oh, would to ring instead you had guns shoot. That is surreal. Wow. It was surreal. But it certainly gave me another. I was walking by Karl Rahnerplatz all the time, uh, you know, and so all these names were familiar. I was reading, you know, a lot of, of course, theology and so on uh, all the time. We went and I was working, uh, I did some of the time there, I was working for um, the German speaking vineyard movement, which was really a movement and had some small groups that were Catholic in Catholic parishes. Um, uh, they weren't churches, you know, yeah. they were careful that. Uh, they were small groups, but um, you could say renewal group. Um, and, um, but Judy was invited to start doing pastoral care for vineyard pastors in the USA, in Houston, which is her hometown. Okay, so pastoral care, again, related to the counseling aspect. So these pastors come and they are sharing. They're burned, they're burned, they're, they're burned out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And you so, know, and then you're able to help guide them through that difficult time, basically. That's right. What, and yeah. I was invited to come and join the staff of the Sugarland Vineyard near Houston, in the Houston area, uh, in Texas. And um, <laughs> there was a problem. The board didn't want a woman in that position. So my boss had to hire a young man and put him out front. And I stood behind him, but I 
created the retreats and created the team, trained the team and led the, the retreats. Um, he was my- That's what's in this book. <laughs> when was that written? Just so I know, when was that written? It was this published is... 2015. Okay. But it, it, I wrote it over a period of seven years. Wow. So, yeah. So you know so what I, I you know what I want to do um, right. because of where we are in the story, I want to have another. I, I think there's too much still to go, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so are you. If you're open to that, I'd love sure. to be able to continue it because there are so many questions still about all these How things we became together. And I find it fascinating what you were saying about the Lutheran. Anglican, Catholic, you know, all this starts to meld together and the brotherhood and sisterhood that, that can form there. So if you're okay with it, I want to leave it okay. here yeah. and we're going to pick this up again because I think there's so much more to unpack. Fine. Sure. Awesome. Excellent. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, everyone, we're going to leave it there. Part two will come out next week. And uh, until next time, take care and God bless. Bye.